Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. What powerful words. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from your hand. You, if you start a relationship with Jesus, he's going to keep it. And you will always have it. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, earlier than usual for you, right? About an hour. And I just got to say, Frank, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in years. It's awesome. Uh, Frank uh, Diamond got saved through our ministry here many, many years ago. And it's good to have him here with us today. <laughs> so, I think we know what happened today, don't we? I mean, celebrating on this day. We know the what's. We've heard the what's many, many times. Probably a more important question would be, why? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Why is it such an important thing? And, and the Bible presents lots and lots of, of reasons for that. I mean, it, it indicated that, that God had indeed sac- accepted his sacrifice for our sins. It indicated that he was victorious over death and the penalty of sin. It did that. It means he's alive today. We can talk to him and, and he can, we can pray and he can answer our prayers. It means he can live within us because if he's dead, he couldn't be doing that. I mean, we go through a long, long list. And understanding why is really, really important. And um, today I want you to show you from a passage of Scripture a why that you may not have heard before. But it's an important one. And it's raised by the Apostle Paul. Now the Apostle Paul traveled with his uh, fellow uh, missionaries. Paul didn't like boats, okay? And we, we kind of see that, and he has reason. He talks about things that happened to him when he traveled in boats. Uh, but so he sometimes would go by land while they would go by boat somewhere. But anyway, he ends up in the city of Athens. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Athens, but really Athens was the, the center of, of, of Greek culture, Greek philosophy, uh, very cosmopolitan. People from all over the world came there and, and studied and talked and discussed. And, and uh, it, it was a center of all kinds of religious life from all over the world as well. And it's here that the Apostle Paul gives us one of the whys of the resurrection. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay, but we would encourage you to pick up one of the Bibles from underneath the chairs in front of you there and follow along with us. I'll give you page numbers as you need it. We're going to start on page 1,276, Acts chapter 17. And let's start in verse number 16. It says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, for his, his fellow missionaries to, to join him, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. In other words, everywhere you went in the city, there was an idol to this God, an idol to that God, a shrine to the other God. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. 
and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, well, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is the place to go if you wanted to have a conversation about anything related to philosophy or religion, probably politics. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And, and so what they had altars to all of these gods, idols to, to worship at, all these things, but they were concerned. Somebody had a concern. And what was the concern? Maybe we missed one. In fact, maybe we missed a really important one. We don't know. So let's try to cover that by saying, listen, altar to this God we don't know. We don't know yet. The rest of verse 23, Paul says, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. What a God-ordained opportunity, huh? To come along and the unknown God, okay, let me tell you who this unknown God is. And so Paul starts. And by the way, what we have here probably is really just an introduction to Paul's message that he intended to share with them. Probably just the intro. So let's, let's start reading here. Verse 24. Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So let's just stop here. He's, he's talking about this unknown God that you've built this, this altar to or this, this, it's like an idol, you've built this. And he says, that isn't how this God works. He isn't about the things that, that human beings make with their hands, uh, that you worship him with these things. In fact, he is the creator of everything, including all of you. All right, and, and so he says he has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek him, seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said. Then he quotes one of their, their poets, or excuse me, not prophets, poets. For we are also his offspring, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, in other words, God is the one who created us, we come from him, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, you've got to understand, when he said that, that's in the face of everything that they were doing, wasn't it? Because he said everywhere he went, there was another idol, there was another altar, there was another, and he's saying, we ought not do that. Because that's not what this God you don't know is about. 
And then he says this, verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Talk to us later. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Oropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some did believe. But if we go back up to verses 30 and 31, we find this reason, one of the reasons for the resurrection. Again, verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why should they repent? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. God is going to judge the world based on his righteousness, his standards. Now, all of these different gods that they had uh, around that they would, you know, give honor to here and there and serve them in some ways and maybe make offerings to them and all this kind of stuff, he says, that is not what God is looking for in you. God is looking for righteousness in you that comes from the heart. And it's God's standards of righteousness. I think most of us have heard the scripture, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, of the righteous standards of God. And he says, that's what you're going to be judged on. And of course, the reality is that we don't measure up, do we? None of us do. They didn't. We don't. And he says, so God is going to judge people on the basis of his righteousness by this person that he has appointed to be the judge. Okay? And then he says this. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He resurrected the judge who's going to be doing this judgment. But he has given assurance of this. So what's the, the thing here? So let's talk about assurance. Assurance defined, it means persuasion or about something being credible, about belief, about faith. And so really what we're talking about here is that God has given us a reason to believe that this is true, that there is a judgment coming. And there is a judge who will judge us on the basis of God's righteousness. Well, how do we know? Why should we believe that? Well, here's why. God did something with him that nobody else can do. He raised him from the dead. And so this is one of the reasons that Jesus rose from the dead, one of the things that God was doing. And so it's an assurance that he gives us. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then the coming judgment is really true. That makes sense? Okay, well, how do we know? Well, one rose from the dead. All right, now, this automatically begs the question, if you were in Athens hearing this, or you're here today hearing this, you're, you're on, online with us and you're hearing this, uh, and we're saying if Jesus really rose from the dead, then the coming judgment is really true. So what's the question? Did Jesus really rise? Right? Because if he did, then we know that this is really going to happen. 
And if he didn't, what does it matter? Right? And so, so let's just talk a little bit. Let's do a little flashback here. Let's go back to where we ended up last week. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, page 1248. John 19. And let's start down in verse 28. This is right where we ended up last week. Again, page 1248 in the Bible that's in the chairs. It says this, after this, Jesus is already on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Well, what he means is that I have now accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for the sins of all mankind to be forgiven. I have done everything that needs to happen for human beings to be reconciled with God. I've done that. It is finished. There's no more I need to do. Now, let me ask you this. If it really is finished, what is there that you need to do? You need to join a church? I'd love to have you join our church if you're not a member. But do you need to join a church to be made to reconcile to God? No. It is finished. Do you need to get baptized to be reconciled to God? No. It is finished. Do you need to give money to be reconciled to God? No, it is finished. Do you need to do some kind of good works to be reconciled with God? No, it is what? Finished. He's done it all. Now, he still needs to rise from the dead to finish the deal. But it is finished, and so he dies. He actually allows himself to die. Could Jesus have kept himself from dying? Yes, and he says, couldn't the Father send angels and rescue him if that was the plan? But it wasn't the plan. So Jesus bows his head and he gives up his spirit. He dies. All right, so let's continue reading now here. Because we want to establish, did he really die? Therefore, because it was the preparation day, the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Remember, there were three people crucified, Jesus and two other criminals, two criminals. And um, crucifixion, the crucifixion tended to kill people in one of two ways or a combination of those two ways. And first of all, typically, crucifixions, people lasted two to four days on the cross. A record of one man lasting nine days. So the Jews had reason to think that they aren't going to be dead and they're going to be hanging on the cross and that doesn't work for them in their Sabbath and what they need to do. And so they asked Pilate to break their legs. And here's why. It's because as a, as a person hangs on the cross, nails through their feet, heels, handing here, the weight, right, you're going to sag down. And as you sag down, everything the way the diaphragm works, it gets hard to breathe and you breathe very shallowly. And so every now and then they would push up against those nails and gasp for breath, okay? And then, you know, back down for days, okay? And, and so sometimes they just got so weak they couldn't pull up anymore and the, the breathing got shallower and shallower and eventually they just died. Now, 
This whole idea of the shallow breathing and a very rapid heart rate because of the pain that's been inflicted and is still being inflicted, it begins to cause breakdown of certain tissues and fluids build up in the body. The shallow breathing. And apparently around the heart, there's a pericardial sac, small, it normally has a little fluid in it, but as this goes on, that fluid will build up. And also even around the lungs because of the shallow breathing. Parts of the lungs begin to fail and fill up with fluids. And so, which makes it even harder for them to breathe. But sometimes the fluid around the heart would get so great that the pressure on the heart would stop the heart. All right? So these are the way people died. But this is why the Jews ask, you know, we need to have those legs broken so we can speed this process up and so they can't breathe anymore. They will die and die quicker. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now let's just stop right here. Who is crucifying Jesus? Actually, do you know who it is? Who is it? The Roman. Roman soldiers. What were Roman soldiers experts at? Killing people. That's what they were experts at. They knew what they were doing. They knew what somebody looked like when they were dead. And so they break the legs of the other two criminals, and then they look at Jesus and says, he's already dead. And then it says this, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, that is um, an indication of what I talked to you about when the fluid building up. For there to be enough fluid for them, let me just back up. Normally if you stuck this spear in and there was some fluid and blood, what would you see come out? The blood. And any fluid that was in it would be what? Have blood mixed in it. It would just look like blood. The very fact that immediately water, this fluid comes out, and blood separate, that means there was a lot of fluid there. And, and so this soldier pierced the pericardial uh, sack, which allowed that fluid to come out and then went on into the heart, and then the blood comes. So is Jesus dead? Yeah, he's dead. John says, and he who has seen, talking about himself, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That was one of the prophecies about the Messiah. Not one of his bones would be broken. He was supposed to be like this perfect lamb that they offered in sacrifice every year. He was going to be perfect as well. No broken bones. And had he not been dead, they would have what? Broken his bones. And that prophecy wouldn't come true. But it did come true. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Okay, that, that, that had to happen as well. And so there's actually about almost two dozen prophecies that were fulfilled in the crucifixion and death of Christ. But what I want you to see is this. We have experts in death putting Jesus to death, making sure that he is dead, and, and then they actually stick a, a spear into his side and into his heart just to make sure he was dead, and then the evidence that they see indicates that he was already dead. And so we can say this very clearly, that he died, Jesus, he died on the cross, really. And his death was verified by people who would know. And the only reason I make a big deal out of this is because for you to rise from the dead, you must what? 
You must die and be dead, okay? And so sometimes people said, well, he didn't really die. Well, yes, he did. He most certainly did. So let's continue. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's continue reading. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh, that's an ointment, a fragrant ointment, and aloes, the idea of the spices, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And so what they did is they have these, and you may have seen pictures, as I was looking around this week, the pictures of, it's like they had some big sheet that they wrapped Jesus in and then just tied, you know, something around it. That's not the way this worked. They had strips of linen, strips of, of, of maybe be like sheets, but strips. And what they would do is they would wrap these around the body. It's almost like what you think of a mummy, almost. But they would wrap this around, and then they would spread this ointment and these spices on it, and then wrap another layer, and wrap another layer, and do this all the way over the entire body, okay? And so they wrap him in 100 pounds of this ointment and spices. And I gotta thank you, do this with the head. There's no way if he wasn't dead before, he's gonna be dead now. I mean, he was already dead, but this just adds to the certainty of it. Do you think that, uh, let me back up. In our day and age, when it comes to uh, people dying, we typically don't interact with that very much, do we? We, we keep that away someplace, in a nursing home or, or in the hospital, you know, or maybe at home with hospice or something. But after they die, somebody comes and what? Takes that body. And prepares it for burial. And so we aren't used to this. In this day and age, people had to do this. Your relative died. You had to bury them. And so they worked with the body. And there's all sorts of evidences of somebody being dead. And they would have known those things. They would have experienced it. Do you think that if Jesus was still warm and very shallow breathing, they said, ah, oh, well, let's go ahead and wrap him up? I don't think so. They would have known. And so, again, evidence that Jesus is dead. And then verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. All right, let's continue. Now, on the first day of the week, so we've gone from the crucifixion through the Sabbath, and now to the first day of the week. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken, or the, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and this handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. And I'm going to give you some insight on that in just a moment. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They hadn't understood this yet. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But let me tell you what they saw when they went there. First of all, there's no body there. But the linen, the cloths were there. And when it says here in verse 6, they saw the linen cloths lying there. That word lying means stretched out. In other words, the same way Jesus had been laying there, the grave clothes are still laying there. You remember they have been wrapped in ointment? They aren't unwrapped. They are still stretched out there and they are just empty. It has collapsed. How does that happen? And then it says that the handkerchief that had been around his head, I don't know if you think of a handkerchief, but this was the, the claws, the smaller claws, most likely, wrapped around his head. You know, so they were folded together in a place by himself. This word folded, the Greek word that's translated folded here, literally means twisted or wound up. And the idea is this, that uh, it was wrapped around Jesus' head and neck here in this area, and when he came out, it was left behind, and it looks folded because it's what? collapsed. But what you're seeing is that this wound clothes collapsed there, separate from the body. Not over there separate, separate here. Here's the body and then there's the head. But Jesus isn't there. And so understand this, that the body was gone, but the burial clothes were still there, still wrapped in the shape of Jesus' body. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, you, there's no way, that you, you know, you can say, how could that happen? There's no way that could have happened by itself. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. So she recognizes him, okay? Now why is this significant? Well, let me go ahead and give you the point here. A woman was the first person to see Jesus alive, a fact the disciples would not have included in a fictitious account, okay? Now, just let me say that um, the status of women in this day was not what we would have in our country today, okay? Nonetheless, I want you to know that in the Jewish religion and then certainly in the Christian religion, it always has improved the lot of women wherever it goes because men and women are equal in the sight of God, okay? But in this day, the testimony of women was not valued. They couldn't even, in a court of law, you wouldn't call a woman to testify. I'm sorry, okay? That's not me. But they wouldn't. So if they were making up this account, would they have had a woman be the first to see him and testify of this? No, they would have done that. The only reason they did it is because it's true. See, it really is true, these accounts. Let's go down to, to verse 19. 
Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Well, back up just a minute. I want to point something out to you. In verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. What are the disciples doing? Why are they hiding? Because they're afraid. They're fearful people. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Right. That's not actually there, is it? But he says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I do not believe now and I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But Thomas now believes. So these, they, they were not believing, were they? that Jesus was alive or going to be alive. They did not believe that. They were afraid. They were in hiding. Now they do believe that he is risen. And, and we're going to see that they are no longer fearful. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the religious leaders, when they're going after the apostles, say this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the what of them? The boldness. They realized that they had been with Jesus. And they didn't necessarily realize, but not just before he died, but after he rose. And so the disciples are changed forever. And so here's the point. The doubting disciples became convinced of his resurrection, and it changed their lives. There's no way they would have uh, been changed if they had not seen Jesus. Because what did they do? They endured persecutions. They endured beatings. They endured being put in jail. They did not get rich. They did not get powerful. None of the reasons that you would lie about did they get. And they never changed their story. Why? I mean, are people willing to suffer for a lie, or you know, go through hard things for a lie if they're going to get something out of it? But if you know you're not getting anything out of it, why would they hang on to a lie? It wasn't a lie. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know what? Just for time's sake, we're not going to turn there. But very clearly, the, the, the risen Jesus was seen by hundreds of people during a 40-day period after his death, verifying the disciples' claim. I mean, there's just... It, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And there is no reasonable reasons, there are no reasons to doubt it. And if you have questions, that's, that's cool, man, I, I understand that. Um, and I'd be glad to help you with that. Just talk to me and we, we can set up some time and try to answer all your questions. Uh, but history validates that Jesus rose from the dead. So where does this leave us then? Because what did Paul say? 
He said, God has given us assurance that this judgment on, by God's righteousness is coming. He gave us assurance because Jesus rose from the dead. And so here's the assurance. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then the coming judgment is really true. Well, that doesn't sound like such good news, does it? Okay, now you've assured me. Jesus is going to judge me on the basis of God's righteous standards, which I have failed to measure up to. This isn't good news by itself. But we have another assurance. Since Jesus really rose from the dead, then we can escape that coming judgment by receiving Christ as Savior. So this Jesus didn't come just to be a judge. He did come to be a judge, and he will be that judge one day. But he came to be a Savior because God loved us so much that he didn't want us to perish, and so he sent his only son Right? To die for us and rise for us. And so if we, well, let's just, let's just step back and, and review here. Every one of us have sinned and failed to measure up to God's standards of righteousness. We all know that. Just be honest with yourself here today. You know that there have been things that God says you ought not do that you have done. There are things that God says you ought to do that you have not done. There have been motives in your heart that God says you ought not to have, right? I mean, we can go, and all of us, and it just, the, the list gets longer and longer as we think about it. We've all failed. The Bible is very clear that if we die in that condition without having fixed that problem, that we will stand before God guilty at this judgment that Paul talked about, we will stand in that judgment and show that we do, have not done what God said. We are guilty, and the penalty for guilt at that point is eternity in hell. No way out. That's what we will have earned. But that's why Jesus came. He came into this world. The Son of God became a man, lives a perfect and sinless life, goes to the cross, dies on the cross, and hangs there. As he hangs there, God the Father that says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's taken all of our sins. Everybody in the whole world who's ever lived, and he dies paying the penalty for that sin. And he reaches the point where he says what? It is finished. I have paid the price. He dies and rises from the dead. And the scripture tells us that if we will be honest with ourselves and God, and acknowledge that we have sinned against the holy God. Our ways are not the right ways. His are, and we haven't measured up. And we've blown it, and we know that if we die in that condition, we're going to be separated from him forever. So we turn away from our own ways and our own lives and our own trying to get, right? and we turn away and we turn to Christ and just by faith say, okay, I believe this. I believe you died for my sins and rose again. Right now, I receive you as my Savior. I accept your payment for the penalty of my sins. We're turning away from our. Turning to him and saying, okay. Giving in to God and receiving what Jesus came to do for us. And so that is the good news. And if we will receive Christ as Savior, we don't have to stand at this judgment that Paul talked about because guess what? Jesus already took that judgment for us. And so we won't have to stand there if we receive Jesus as Savior. If we don't, then we're going to be in that judgment and face the eternal penalty. 
I want to give you, before we're done today, an opportunity to settle this issue in your life. Then, uh, one more assurance for those of us who have received Jesus. Since Jesus really rose from the dead, we who have received Christ as Savior can have hope no matter what our circumstances are. Uh, Glenda's talking to me quite a bit this week. She's really been pondering what it would have been like to be the disciples and the followers of Christ and to see him crucified and dead and done. What were they thinking and feeling on Saturday? Can you imagine waking up and going, oh yeah, right? And the weight of that and really probably no hope. You know, everything that they had dreamed of was done. Everything they had counted on was no longer could they count on from their minds, right? This is where they were at. It hit me that sometimes our lives are like that. We find ourselves living on Saturday. You know what I mean by that? In other words, we had hopes and things and ways we worked and we hoped all that, and something happened in our life. A relationship fell apart. Multiple relationships fell apart. Health crisis. Uh, anyway, but all these things we counter on haven't happened, and problems have come, and we find ourselves in despair and saying, I don't even know how I can go on. What is the point? And so we're struggling. And so we find ourselves on Saturday in our lives. But because Jesus rose from the dead, I want to say to you that in your life, Sunday is coming at some point. If you know Jesus is Savior, you don't get stuck on Saturday. He's going to work in your life. And he's going to do something. Ephesians 1 says that you may know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead. The resurrection power of Christ is at work in your life, even when you don't see it, even when you don't understand it. So here are the disciples on Saturday, and there's no hope. It's despair and problems and bigger than they can figure out, and they don't know where to go or what to do. And, and was Jesus not Rising the next day. He was rising the next day. They, whether they realize it or not, he was, wasn't he? Well, I'm telling you, in your life today, that if you find yourself in places because of things that happen, your life is just wiped out and you don't know what to do, Jesus, there's a Sunday coming. Jesus hasn't left you. You're going to experience his power and working in your life. You may feel like it's all over, Right? Okay, we had a good run for a while, but man, it's, it's done. And some of you have been through things like this in your life. Some of you may be right now. You aren't, you will be. Paul said on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, till he returns. Is God going to finish this work he started in you? Even though your life seems like it's destroyed right now. He is. He is faithful. He's going to do this work in you. Now, here's the thing. He's not necessarily going to do this work the way you would choose to have him do it. When the puzzle gets knocked off the table and all the pieces are in array and you start to pick the puzzle pieces and put it back together, and Jesus comes along and says, and I'm talking about your life, right? Yeah. Jesus comes along and says, no, let's don't, let's don't put it back together that way. 
let's put it together this way and that way. And it's, it's not what you would have chosen and it isn't how you would have naturally done it, but Jesus puts it together. And what you discover is where you end up is in a better place than you would have been had this not happened in your life. As hard as it is sometimes to get our heads around it, that's true. And the Apostle Paul talks about this when he talks about how devastated they were and, and beat down and, and, and just crushed under the load of what was happening. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 1, that we, he said this happened, that we should not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And Paul experienced that. But so here's the deal. When you find yourself on Saturday, there's probably things in your life that need to be changed. And God is going to use that to do it. He's going to change you in ways that are awesome and good. And so what I want to encourage those of you who've received Jesus as Savior, that whatever you face in life, the fact that Jesus is risen gives you eternal hope. You know, if the worst happens and it never seems to get solved in this life, Jesus makes everything right in the life to come. Right? It's all going to be made right. And so how ought we to live today? What should our attitudes be like today? I want you to watch a short video here, and then I'm going to come back and we'll wrap things up, okay? Can you imagine the joy when they saw Jesus and he really was risen from the dead? We can live that way. We can live that way, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus gives us assurance of these things. And so we... I have a review here, right? Because Jesus, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then the coming judgment is really true. And since Jesus really rose from the dead, then we can escape the coming judgment by receiving Christ as Savior. Since Jesus really rose from the dead, we who have received Christ as Savior can have hope no matter what our circumstances are. Hope and joy. But the key is you have to receive Jesus as Savior to experience this reality. How many of you here today would say, man, I remember. I remember that time when I, I opened up my heart and I received Jesus as my Savior. You know, how many of you remember that? Okay, very, very clearly. All right, great, and put your hands down. What about you who couldn't raise your hands today? You didn't know for sure what to do about this. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as Savior and settle this issue once and for all in your life. So let's all just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here and you say, yeah, I didn't really know how to answer that question. I couldn't raise my hand. I, I'm going to encourage you right now to pray along with me to receive Jesus as Savior. It's not my words, not magic words or anything like that. But, so you don't have to say the exact words. But right now, if you want to receive Jesus as Savior, say something like this silently in your heart to God. Say, God, I know that I have sinned. And I know that my sins have separated me from you. I know that my sins will send me to hell. 
I believe that Jesus is who the Bible said he is. And that he died for my sins and rose again. So right now, the best I know how, I receive Jesus as my Savior. I put my faith in Jesus to forgive all of my sins and give me eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Still heads bowed, eyes closed. If you just pray to receive Jesus as Savior, the Bible says that, that Jesus has now forgiven every sin you ever have or ever will commit. He has given you eternal life and this life is over. You go to heaven to be with him and he has moved into your life and is going to begin working to help you change in good ways from the inside out. So a little bit ago, you couldn't raise your hand. If I were asking the question again now, how many of you who just prayed to receive Christ as Savior, would you just, nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand and say, I did, I just prayed to receive Christ as Savior. Anybody here like that today? All right, Father, thank you for this person who has raised hand, Lord, and I just pray for your great encouragement in, in life, that these things would just be so true, and I pray that they'd let us help them, Father. Thank you for what you've done for us. We celebrate the resurrection. Help us to live out the reality of the resurrection each and every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just before I let you go, let me encourage you, whether you just prayed to receive Christ as Savior today or you have questions about Christianity or whatever it is, find your way out in the foyer to the, that display, the path display, and there'll be somebody talking there who can talk to you about what your next steps might be, what next steps you could take to really grow in these things, okay? God bless you. Have a great Easter day, and Lord willing, we'll see you soon.